Yeah, oh man, if I could do anything this morning, it's good to see you guys. It would be for you just to enjoy a little bit of what uh, Mark and I get to enjoy. Um, Dan, Todd, I don't know where Todd is in the room, but there he is in the back. Um, your pastors, uh, the fellowship we enjoy uh, as pastors uh, in, a, in our family of churches, but as well, I, I want you to, uh, if I could just a little bit this morning, just get you to feel a little bit of the, the joy of partnering with, with people just like you in states all over. Actually, I was at dinner last night with a couple folks from your church, and we were talking about, uh, I was sharing one of the joys of, of being uh, a part of this family of churches. I get to travel around a little bit, and uh, every church is the same, but it's different. Like I was in Arizona, uh, was it two weeks ago, and I went on a motorcycle ride with a bunch of guys because they heard I rode my motorcycles. And I go on the ride, and, and, and there were mo more handguns than there were motorcycles on this trip. And I was like, this is only in Arizona. Would you, maybe here too, but they were, you know. And, but then when I get off the plane here and I look around, it feels like everybody's going on a hike. Like I, come, I get off the plane, I'm like, we're, like, we're all mountain climbing and you're in the airport. So uh, uh, greetings from all your sister churches, not just the pastors, but the members of the churches. Actually, I know uh, for certain uh, uh, regularly at this point, um, folks have been playing, praying for your pastor, Dan and Dinah and your family. As you and and just rejoicing uh, as we heard some recent reports of some health, um, but I and I know the Orange Church is praying this uh, this morning probably. Well, I guess they're still asleep. I don't know what time zone we're in, um, but uh, praying for you and there are members of our church. It's not just a a, a, a pastoral fraternity, but it but it's actual church members. And if you're ever in Southern California, you're going to Disneyland or something like that, we'd love to have you on a Sunday morning and uh, for you to meet the folks around there. As well, if I could just say um, one more thing. Uh, you, you, you don't realize how big your footprint is. You know, like we in California, we talk about our carbon footprint. That's what it's all about, our carbon footprint. Maybe it is here too. But, but you're, you're, we'll say your gospel ministry footprint is much, much larger than you're aware of. And in particular, uh, through your pastor Mark, um, in particular in the West, and I probably said this before to you maybe three years ago, but it's still true. It's more true. Um, you can find smart guys. There are a lot of smart guys. I'm not one of the smart guys, but I can identify the smart guys in the room. Uh, and uh, uh, Mark is our Western, you might say, family of churches smart guy. Um, but you, but it's easy to find smart guys. It, it's really difficult to find a smart guy whose uh, his his maturity level, his the depth of his uh, love for the Lord, his love for the gospel, his discernment it matches his smartness, and uh, that's what uh, if if you were in a room full of sovereign grace pastors in the West, you would experience everybody at moments turning to listen to your pastor as he as we're wrestling with something, the dumb guys in the room, and then Mark explains to us what, what, whatever it is that we're uh, um, trying to understand. Um, Mark is a gift. I know to you, but thank you for sharing him. Thanks, thanks for sharing all your lives with us as, as family churches, but thanks for sharing Pastor Mark uh, with us. Uh, we're a stronger, uh, more fruitful, happier church in, in Old Town Orange in California because uh, you share Pastor Mark with us. And I know this, this week you'll be in Orange again. You were there like two weeks ago with a bunch of pastors just fellowshipping and having a retreat. And then this week you'll be uh, examining a bunch of young guys who want to join uh, Sovereign Grace Churches as a pastor and be ordained. And, and Mark will be the smart guy on the other side of the table evaluating them. 
thankfully, I was ordained before Mark (laughs) was the chairman of the regional ordination committee, which explains a lot in a moment. You're going to catch on. But uh, uh, so thank you. Thank you. You're, you're, you're bearing fruit right here, and I know in your hearts and your lives, but you're bearing fruit all over the Western U.S. Actually, nationally, you're a national treasurer as you serve on our uh, theology committee as a denomination globally, which sounds really impressive, as global theological community. Um, so thank you. Oh, gosh. I could, I could just go on and on. Um, if you would, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you don't know the Bible, you're unfamiliar with the Bible, safe place. Uh, just look up 2 Corinthians 5, Google it, and you'll find it. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is a familiar uh, passage of Scripture. If you know your Bibles, there's nothing new. I'm going to say this morning, I'm not one of those smart guys. The Apostle Paul is defending who he is, his apostleship. Uh, he's explaining to this early church, some of the first Christians, what it is that God had commissioned him to do, and in turn, by implication, w- what we are commissioned to do. You and I are commissioned to do as well. And uh, as you turn there and you and I read, watch, just watch it as you read. Just take it in. How many therefores there are in this passage? There are more therefores per square, you might say per square inch, in this passage than anywhere else in, in, in Paul's letters. There's a lot of therefores because this is one of those passages that Paul's hanging his, what his therefore is, why he exists on, on what he's about to say here. And in fact, this can be your therefore as well. It is, a, it is your therefore. So look with me. I'll read then pray. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 11. Translator heading reads, the ministry of reconciliation. Paul writes, verse 11. Therefore, there's the first one. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Verse 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer, therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
These are the very words of God. Would you, would you pray with me briefly that we might understand them? Father, Father, take these words, and with your spirit who's here today, would you, would you change us? Would, would those words impact our hearts and our minds, renew our thinking and our feelings? Don't let any of us leave here the same as we arrived as we listen to you speak. Father, fill me with your spirit. Let me serve my friends. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Listen, uh, observation. America, America is all kinds of things, but America at this moment is bored. America is bored. Recent studies indicate that on average the American experiences 131 days out of every year they ex we experience boredom. Scientists are actually studying uh, this phenomenon because they know how bad boredom is for us, our country, and our society, for us personally. And if you're wondering how they measure boredom, it's really funny. Listen, here it is. One prominent researcher on the study of boredom, he, shows, he takes participants in and he shows them a video clip in a quiet room all alone. And here's, here's the, the, the video is designed to to cause them to be clinically bored. Okay, here's a, the video goes on like this for, for minutes. Two, two men stand in a white windowless room. This is how they, silently, this is so odd, they take clothes from a pile between them, and if you do laundry, you know boredom. They take <laughs> clothes from a pile between them and they hang them on a white rack. A shirt, and then they take a sweater, you know, those things. And the, 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 the time just keeps ticking by, 15 seconds, a minute, two minutes. One man then, at some point in the video, will ask the other for a clothespin. <laughs> two minutes pass on by. They keep hanging laundry. Three minutes pass by. They keep hanging laundry. And it's a loop that it can last like, they, the uh, scientist says, as much as five and a half minutes it takes the average person. Five and a half minutes. He does all this until the, the, the participant in his study can, can be diagnosed as clinically depressed. And here's how he defines being clinically depressed. Feeling stuck in a situation that feels irrelevant. So it, you can imagine you're sitting watching this video, feeling stuck in a situation that feels irrelevant. At that point, you're declared clinically bored. And, 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 and listen, I, I, and this is true, America is often clinically bored, and I think that's the ills of many of our, our problems, but, but let me just ask the question, how about us as a church? As, as Christians, how often are we bored? How, how, do you ever feel, as a, as a church member, as a Christian, as, as a member of, a, uh, of God's church, do you ever feel stuck in a situation that feels irrelevant? Bored stiff, clinically uninspired. I, I fear this too often for my own soul, for my family, for, for the members of my church, my friends, as it pertains in particular to why are therefore, why Sovereign Grace Church of Orange, not all of them are called this, our sister church, but Sovereign Grace Church of Aurora, why, are we, why, why specifically do we exist? What is our therefore? Oftentimes, I think, uh, we find ourselves, I don't know, spiritually, Bored. And, and so my, my goal is just simple this morning. I just got one goal this morning. 
And that's to remind us all, and starting with myself, remind us of how unboring, unboring this thing is that you and I are called to, that worthy of devoting our entire lives, everything we got to pledge ourselves, body and soul to this thing. Listen, if you want the kind of staying power that, that will sustain you as you play your part in, 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 in God's plan as you're swept up into his redemptive purposes right that are going on all around the world and even here in aurora colorado and out into this community if we want that kind of sustaining power we don't want to end up bored right we must for our own good for god's glory here's all i got marvel rather than feeling stuck and irrelevant so marvel at god's mission which is our mission. Marvel at God's mission. When we read, like we did today, when we read God is making his appeal through us, our first questions can't just be, you know, like when and where, get me a map, let's come up with a strategy. But instead, if we want that kind of staying power as a church, as a Christian, and not fall victim to some sort of feeling of irrelevance and <laughs> unimportance, we need to be asking questions like, why? Why would God be making an appeal? Why is this, what we just read, even a thing? Why, why is God making an appeal at all? And, and listen, this is the marvelous part about the marvelous mission of God. So often overlooked and assumed. God is making his appeal to sinful men through sinful men and women and children like you, us. He's offering forgiveness for every sin. Salvation for anyone who will believe in, in the Son, who will re relent and repent, experiencing the new beginnings as you and I have, many of us have, of a new creation and, and this crea new created order who then joins us to his marvelous mission. This thing, this marvelous mission of God, the most interesting, this is what I'm going to argue for, thing happening today if we could just take it in one more time again, we won't feel so stuck. So that's all I got this morning. If you'd look with me again, verse one, I, I want to ask three questions this morning. This is really what happens when you look at what God is doing in the world today. We should be asking a bunch of questions. Number one, first one, verse 11, the first of three why questions. Why would God persuade? This will make it a, a marvelous mission rather than just a ho-hum kind of thing. Why would God persuade? If you look what it says, verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And if you stop right there, this is really interesting. It's an interesting business that Paul is in and that he's conducting. For on one hand, Paul is not, listen, Paul is not communicating that he's been attempting to impress the Corinthians or to sell them on something with some sort of slick presentation or innovative argument. No, quite the opposite. What Paul is doing here, here's why the text is here. He's contrasting himself with the so-called apostles who have been doing that very thing, which, which the Corinthian church has been attracted to. Those very first Christians were attracted to. That's why he continues in the middle of verse 11. But what we are is known to God. And he says, and I hope it's also known to your conscience, right? Not your expectations, not your standards, but internally. That's what Paul's arguing for. Spiritually, discerningly, in your hearts, the power of God at work through the plain preaching of Christ and Christ crucified. It's being authenticated. Paul's Paul's hoping for, it's being authenticated. Verse 12, we're not commending ourselves 
to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. Paul, Paul, and if that seems odd, listen, this boast about us, more like boast about the work of Christ through Paul. That's what he's saying. And his associates. In spite of Paul and his associates, why would God be persuading? In spite of Paul and his associates, the Corinthians, Paul is saying, if they were honest, would admit it, as he explained himself in the last chapter, chapter 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay. There's nothing impressive about us. To show the surpassing power, Paul wrote, belongs to God and not to us. Or I love how one scholar writes, he comments on that passage, last chapter, he says, it's as if we have been made a theater show for the world. That's, that's what Paul's saying. We've been made a theater show for the world, verse 12, going back to ours. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, because when you boast about us, you boast about him, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart, verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. Paul is persuading. Paul's persuading, but in his persuading, he is trusting. Trusting, not in his power of persuasion, but in the Lord's, which then begs the question, if I go back to that question, if God is able to save, and this is what makes it marvelous, God's able to save, and he is, right? And you catch that actually in the little phrase, knowing the fear of the Lord, as in knowing that God is sovereign and does whatever he pleases, and this surely extends to his mission to ransom people from every nation for, the, for his son and for his pleasure. If that's the case, God is sovereign, he can save, and it is, then why would he persuade anyone? Why would he persuade when he could just simply decree? Why is God persuading? when he could just do it unilaterally, drop the hammer. Now, listen, this is what makes it marvelous, cause for us to marvel in what God is doing, what we've been swept up to. Listen, he creates us, we reject him. Here's the gospel. He creates us, we reject him. He doesn't simply then just like turn over the game board, shuffle the deck, and reset the pieces. No, then we learn, this is the story of the Bible, it's a missional document. We learn that he then sets out to win us back. Like a bridegroom wins his bride. All of his powers. This is this persuading word. All of God's powers engaging all of you. Your head, your heart, your soul. I love how Richard Phillips, he wrote a great book about this. He said, says this when he writes, this irresistible persuasion. Right? Why would God persuade? This irresistible per persuasion glorifies the entire Trinity. Listen, by provide, proving how intimately involved God is in every conversion. It reminds us, this persuasion, that when we speak about God's grace, we do not mean that God sits afar, right? But rather, God places his holy hands on our filthy hearts. He's persuading us. God places his holy hands on our filthy hearts, he writes, Richard Phillips writes, with more personal contact than a surgeon uses in operating on your body, God is intimately involved in saving our souls. Listen, he writes, how sublime beyond words it is to realize that the transcendent, majestic God 
takes such a personal interest in every sinner who comes to faith in Christ. Far from being a nameless number in a vast crowd, right? The feeling of just the hammer drops and he decrees saved, not saved, right? But instead, far from being a nameless number in a vast crowd, every believer has been personally ministered to by God's overwhelming grace. That's the persuasion. Truly, he is to us as a father is to a dear child. The Christian name for God, he writes. Father. Right? God could just drop the hammer, save some, and decree saving grace on some. But instead, instead we hear God's wooing us. He's wooing us, not, not with lights and lasers and smoke and mirrors, but he's wooing us with his grace. Have you, have you considered this? Why would God persuade us when he's sovereign? He's got no rival. He's all-powerful. It's because, it's because this tension between, between his sovereignty and our responsibility, human responsibility, which demonstrates our dignity and reveals his glory, and as he persuades us, his sovereignty saving us unilaterally saved by grace alone if listen if it felt like your decision that moment you believed if it felt like your decision it felt like it was my decision on that moment that night but my conclusion uh, that that my conclusion my salvation as if the preacher had preached the gospel and, and given a gospel invitation one more time, and my heart at that moment dissolved into a at that moment it put, dissolved in a puddle of tears and relief. But, it, but but maybe it was because of his convincing speech. He was persuading me. Maybe it was because I had made the decision. But no, that's what we're reading even here this morning. Not in the end. We persuade. You persuade. We. That's our calling and commission. Every one of us, because it is in us as his instruments of grace that he persuades, then conquers. In his, for his greater glory, this is a marvelous design. He woos us, persuades us. How, you might say, opposite of boring is that? Operates on your very heart with his holy hands. But number two, second question. Even better, why, no, why would he persuade us? Why, why would he love us? Why, why, does, why does God persuade? Why does God love? <laughs> this should not be a familiar th- concept as well. Look again, verse 14 and following. Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Very familiar, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. Notice, please notice, Paul's explanation for why he's doing what he is doing, why he's giving his life to what he's giving his life to, why he does what he does, why he lives for what he lives for is not located in the, uh, his, the object of his intended hearers, in, in, in the people that he's trying to reach and persuade. He doesn't say, for the love of you, Corinthians, controls us. And, and, and we can add to this, for the love of Aurora, controls us. Paul, Paul doesn't say that. For as, much, and as much as I love Californians, and for their sake, you know, I'm enduring you know, endless summer breezes and 70 degree weather. 
If it, it, doesn't, it doesn't say there, for the love of California controls me. Californians. This is way better. I don't know how many times you've heard someone, maybe I've said it, you might have said it. I'm here, I love my neighbors. That's why I'm reaching the gospel. But listen, Paul's got something way better, way better. Marvel at your mission. It's, it's not even that Paul loves Jesus so much that he's willing to persuade others. It's that God loves us in the first place. Why would he love? That's the question. Why would he love? Because it's who he is. Because it's who he is. Michael Reeves, uh, excellent book on the Trinity, delighting in the Trinity. He states, comparing our God with all the other gods. Listen, if you want to think about why, why would he love? Why, Why is God persuading? Why is he loving? Here's what he writes. Here is a God who is not essentially lonely. Okay, if, that, if you think he's, he's lonely and he needed us. No, here is a God who is not essentially lonely compared to all the other so-called gods, but a God who has been loving for all of eternity as the Father has loved the Son in the Spirit. Loving others is not strange, a strange or novel thing for this God at all. It is the root of who he is. How marvelous. It's the root of who God is love. And that, listen, that's the kinds of things. Those are the kinds of realities that can fuel a lifetime of being evangelistic. Thinking and loving and caring for our neighbors and living as ambassadors for Christ. These are the kinds of things that can cause us to want to be church planters and to be parents and small group leaders and be present in the lives of our neighbors and our community uh, who are perishing. Not because you're lovely, not because your neighbors are lovely, but because the Savior loves. As the writer of Hebrews, he exhorts, let us run, and if you want to participate in this mission for the rest of your life, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And there's a great commission statement, is it not? It's everywhere in your Bible. But who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at, now look at verse 14 again. For the love of Christ controls us. Not your love for someone else, but his love for us. Controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore all have died. We're all condemned. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let let me suggest, listen, let me suggest uh, that right here, (laughs) for me, right here may be the missing factor in the life of a believer who finds it hard to make everyday decisions to be a persuasion for the lost. Okay, here, right here might be the missing factor, right, right here. The missing factor in, a, in the life of a Christian who finds it hard to live their life on this mission. As one author puts it, perhaps the root cause of our lack of engagement in God's mission is not a missional problem. Like, I just don't understand. What am I supposed to be doing? What am I supposed to be saying? Who am I supposed to be loving? Who am I supposed to be reaching? Get the map. we got to make a strategy. But rather, a gospel problem. 
This, this author wrote, we demonstrate by our inaction that we no longer marvel at grace. We're unaffected by the beauty of what God has done for us in Christ. Not what we could do for others, but what he has done for us. And so we live for some other goal. That's what happens. We live for some other goal that has captured our interest and is keeping us maybe hopefully not bored. Some other purpose, some other mission. And we feel stuck. We feel stuck in a situation that feels irrelevant because it is. Because we've missed this. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Listen, he laid down his life for us, and now you want to lay down your life for others, want to be a pastor, want to be a church planner, want to be a deacon, want to be an evangelist or a parent, or just someone who loves their neighbor, a good neighbor in relative obscurity with no fanfare, fill up in a mystery that, that was so long hidden, but now revealed God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in perfect harmony from all of eternity came down to us in the person, Jesus, who agreed with the Father to enter our dark world and your neighbor's dark worlds and live for us and die for us and be raised out of the grave for us that he might demonstrate his love for us and for them. Save us and redeem us and reconcile us and invite us into his world, which is love. Why would he love? This is where he is. This is where he lives. Listen, if Jonathan Edwards, my favorite dead old guy, this is how he calls it. You've probably heard this before, but he says there is in heaven this fountain of love. If you're unfamiliar with, with God, here, here's where he lives. There is in heaven this fountain of love, this eternal three-in-one, set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it. That's heaven. There is in heaven this glorious God who is manifest and shines forth in glory in beams of love. There is this fountain that overflows in streams and rivers of love and delight, enough for all to drink at and to swim in. And he writes, yay, so as to overflow the world as if it were a deluge of love. <laughs> and if we can get that, how could we live for something else, have a different therefore? That's why Paul writes, verse 16, the way, Paul says, the way we see the whole world has changed. Right? Look at verse 16. He says, from now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't see it the way we used to see it. No one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded even Christ according to the flesh. We saw him according to my natural understanding. No, no longer. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. He's talking about resurrection power. He's talking about dead men walking, which reminds me, I don't know if, you, if, if COVID were a couple slow, dark years for you, but they were for me, and there were many times I needed encouragement, right? And I'm wrestling with why, why, right? All of it, why? But in the middle of it, if I could, I'm steeping my soul in this reality that God is love and what he is doing. I, I got this hymn. I don't know if I shared this with you. Maybe I shared this last time I was here because I was here during COVID. You didn't recognize me because I had a mask on. Um, but there was this old hymn, obscure hymn that just meant so much to me at the moment. And I would just, every time I lost my bearings and I didn't know why I was doing what I was doing, this is what, I, when I got bored, I would rehearse this hymn and I won't sing it for you. 
But he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. What comfort this sweet sentence gives. And that right there. I know that my Redeemer lives. What comfort this sweet sentence gives. He lives to bless me with his love. He lives to plead my cause above. He lives to crush the fiends of hell and COVID. He lives and doth within me dwell. And here comes the chorus, the best part. Shout on. We should sing more songs like this. You did sing a song like this morning. Shout on, pray on. We're gaining ground. The dead's alive and the lost are found. Yeah. If you've lost the plot, listen. If you've lost the plot, verse 18, all this is from God, Paul writes who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So the chief and final answer to every question, especially when it comes to why God loves us, why we would love others in the first place, is that by his loving us, we would love him and enjoy him here and in heaven for his greater glory. That's the kind of realities and truths that can fuel and warm up a church to want to reach her city and her community. Why would he love? Because he is love. Last question, best of all, or most <laughs> confusing at all. Why would God persuade? Why would God love? Why would God send us? Why us? Right? Why us? Why would God persuade? Why would God love? Why would he send us? And you got to be real here. Before we look at the text, just, just be real here for a minute. Why us? Why you? Why me? Why the church? Why employ us in his persuasion and his loving others? He could use anything that is at his disposal, which is everything. Why does my changed life, right? What does my changed life have to do with anyone else's potentially, eternally changed life? We read again, verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It should be surprising. Verse 9, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And this is marvel at this. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for him. Ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And all I got on that answer of the why us is why not. <laughs> why not? None of that fit our expectations so far, right? After abolishing, right, just clearing the deck abolishing all the condemnation that you and I justly incur even on a daily basis and, and would, would deserve eternal torture and not to be able to drink from that fountain of love. He turns around then after offering that to us, he uses our ransomed lives as a, as we heard before, a showcase, a theater show of what he does, of what, of what God does for the rest of the watching world. We are his persuasion. We are his persuasion. We're his representatives. We're his ambassadors. Mar marvel at, listen, listen, marvel at them, the mechanics of this, how the, how the gears turn, right? The <laughs> Whether you recognize it or not, your life is persuasive. They're all persuasive. We're all persuading. The question is, the, the question is not, are you persuading? 
But what conclusion is being drawn by your family and children and friends and neighbors and coworkers, your classmates, your fellow church men and church women as they watch you? That's going all the way back to the beginning. Paul wants them to boast in him. But really what he's saying is when you boast in Christ, who's at work in me, same thing's going on with you and I. Everyone else to look around and say, look what Christ can do. Look what he is doing. Charles Hodge, an old, old theologian, another smart guy like your pastor Mark, this is what he wrote about what a, the ministry of an, of, of an ambassador looks like. He wrote, an ambassador is at once a messenger and a representative. An ambassador is at once a messenger, speaking, right, and a representative. He does not speak in his own name, right? He does not speak on his own authority. That's us. What, what he communicates, what we communicate is not his opinions or demands as an ambassador, but simply what has been, he has been told or commissioned to say. That's an ambassador. But also, his message derives no part of its importance from his trustworthiness as an ambassador, we're more than a messenger. We represent the sovereign. An ambassador, Hodge writes, speaks with authority as accredited in the name of his master. Listen, people are starving for what you got. People are starving for what we have. They're, they're, they're bored to tears. Or worse, because they're lost, they don't even know. They don't know. They're, they're searching and scratching for something. They, they're, they're starving for something that will unstick them, make them feel relevant, right? They're starving for your neighbors, starving for success or money or excitement or experiences, you name it. And as you, you find yourself in this generation, in this city, at this time, in this place, in this church, not by coincidence, you're... You're not ultimately, that's what we're learning here, we're not ultimately a husband or a wife, right? Or a mom or a dad or single or married or widowed or divorced. You're, we're not defined by how we look or by what we wear or what we do for a living or by how much we earn or by where we live in Aurora, Colorado or Orange, California or the team we cheer for. And I don't know, do you cheer for the Broncos? You sh I guess you could try today. I don't know if you guys care about what's going on out there, but... Listen, your identity, that's what we're reading here, your identity is not found in things like your gender, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status. You're not defined by your past. You're an you were an alcoholic. You were, you were uh, addicted to something. Or you were a victim of abuse in this way or that. You're, you're not what your counselor says you are. Your genetic makeup or your, your mistakes. You're not what your supervisor says about you at work, ultimately. Or what your parents, this is dangerous if you're in the room, what your parents or your teachers say your future potential is. You're going to be a... No, you're in Christ. Christ in you. He's our identity. It changes how we see the world. It changes how we see ourselves. Don't, listen, don't let, the, 
don't let all the other therefores steal this away from you. Christ in you, Christ in you now, and Christ in you forever. It's our identity. You have an entirely new ID, which leads to an entirely different perspective and purpose and mission, and therefore, listen, marvel at the marvelous mission of God. The dead are alive. The lost are found. He's loved us and persuaded us and wooed us and won us and saved us and it doesn't end with us. The more mature we grow, the more clear this becomes. Jesus saved me for me. No. no. The, more, the more mature you grow in the faith, the more clear it becomes. The less entangled we are in the things of the world, the less entangled you are in the things of the world, the more, the more, the more your heart breaks for the world, for those that are perishing. Listen, it's for, for the brother or sister, you're a Christian here today. It's not the social ills that make you groan. It sh it's not the social ills that make you groan, the loneliness, the brokenness in our world, the sickness, the abuse, the wars. There was a war started last night, if you didn't catch the news. Not here, somewhere else. Uh, but the hate, no, that, they're all there and they break our hearts, but we no longer see the world the way we used to see the world. We no longer see people the way we see people. Let everyone else have their therefores, right? This is our therefore. Back to verse 20 again. You, we, are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through you. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Verse 21, for your sake. Put yourself in there for your sake. You may have heard this a thousand times, but this is your time, your moment to receive this. For your sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. Listen, if that's new to you, don't let anyone keep you from him. Let him persuade you and woo you. You're a young person and you've heard it. You've been drugged here a million times. Not drugged like, you know, drugs, but drugged like as in dragged. Right? <laughs> don't, let, <laughs> don't let anyone keep you from the offer of forgiveness for every sin, past, present, and future. For every wrong you've ever done, every evil deed, every skeleton in the closet, every consequence, all the shame and guilt, you can exchange it all for the one who knew none of that offers for all of us, even again, to take again, believe, confess, come out of the shadows, and allow him to wash you white, white as snow. You think you can fix yourself? That's what we're reading here. You can't, so did I, but we can't. We need a savior. As Paul says, be reconciled to God. But on top of that, for all of us, Sovereign Grace Church, listen, fill your hearts up regularly with a wonder. Oh, don't ask the question, how can I reach my neighbor? How, you know, strategies, and, and I would love strategies, I love trying stuff and attempting big stuff for God, but listen, 
fill your hearts up with wonder at the, the reality that this thing is a thing at all. We're here this morning. This is amazing. It's marvelous. Like, go home and take inventory. What is my life persuading others to believe? To do? Especially if you're frequently, if you frequently find yourself feeling as if you're stuck in a situation that feels irrelevant. And let me just be real clear here. You can feel stuck in a situation that feels irrelevant in a group our size, in a group of thousands of people with lasers and smoke and mirrors, whatever it is. Stuck in, if you feel stuck in a situation that feels irrelevant, you're just going about your day, the mundane tasks of the day, your job, your home, your children, School, that's really boring. School, that's why I didn't end up being one of the smart guys. Um, you feel like you're stuck in a situation that feels irrelevant. You're an ambassador for Christ. You've been called and you have a purpose. You have a therefore. Sovereign Grace Church of Aurora, you have a therefore. And it's to make an appeal. Appeal to everyone who can see you be reconciled to God. Would you pray with me? Father, Father, I pray for grace to see what you are doing. Father, I pray for grace to comprehend and to rejoice in and, and to experience the, the thrill of being a part of what you are doing on this planet, on this day, in this generation. Father, I pray that you would, you would stoke a fire in the furnace of Sovereign Grace Church of Aurora that each and every day, each and every Sunday, body, soul, every moment, everything we have, everything they have would be marshaled into your purposes to reconcile the world through your Son. Delight I pray you would delight this church as, as they see the fruit of your work as they represent your work in Aurora, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response.